The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So on May 19th of this month, pastor and well-known Christian author Tim Keller passed away. He was called home to glory. I'm very thankful for Tim. Uh, he has been a great blessing to many of us. My wife and I had the joy of visiting his church in Manhattan years ago and been blessed by his ministry through books and word in many ways. Certainly our hearts and prayers have gone out to his wife, Kathy. There are three children. And this week, something he wrote, I think, helped set up our passage today very well. He wrote a very, very outstanding book on marriage. I highly commend to you. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. And in it, he has this paragraph, which will be applicable for us today. Here's what he wrote. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Today's passage is one of the most beautiful prayers recorded in the Bible. In today's passage, basically what we are told is being prayed is that we will know the love of Christ. It's a remarkable and needed prayer. This prayer reminds us that we can be fully known and yet truly loved. Known the way God knows us, as Ephesians 2 has said, dead in our trespasses and sins, hostile in our enmity against God, walking in the course of the world, following the influence of the prince, the ruler of the air, and yet assured and transformed. I just want to give away up front how easy it is to trace this prayer because there's only two requests in it, and they both are tipped off by the word strength. So it'll be really simple when we get to it. I'm praying that God will strengthen you for one thing, and then I'm praying God will strengthen you for a second thing. So the title of this morning's sermon is Praying to Know Christ's Love. And if you need it, please open to the Pew Bible, page 1160, and we'll go across to the other page as we see this wonderful prayer. Like many prayers, it breaks down with a beginning, an invocation, a middle, which is intercession, the two requests that I alluded to, and then finally a doxology. So we'll look at it that way as well. So first, the invocation, and that's verses 14 through 15. Look with me in God's word in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. The first three words, for this reason, if you were here last Sunday, you know now Paul is finally picking up on what he intended to say at the beginning of the chapter. These are the first three words of the beginning of the chapter as well. Chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason. And then Paul took a digression about his ministry and calling, and now he returns to what he originally was prompted to do, which is to pray, to pray for Christians, and to pray that Christians would have the strength of God's Spirit to comprehend what God has done for us. He's prompted because God has given so much amazing grace through the mystery of Christ to reconcile people. Now he's praying that we will understand it. And then the next two phrases would be easy to skip over, but they're very instructive for us. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. And I want to take a minute on both. First, the phrase, I bow my knees, is interesting 
Because if you know Jewish culture and if you know the Old Testament, typically people prayed standing up. Think of the parables Jesus tells where someone is standing up in the temple and calling out to the Lord. You're probably familiar with this. So to bow was actually rather rare. Bowing showed that one was urgent in their intercession, but also humbled in the presence of of God's glory. Think of the Old Testament example when Solomon kneels when the Shekinah glory is at the temple. So bowing is rare, but it shows humility and urgency in the presence of God. But then the next phrase, before the Father. There's a fun play on words going on here. In the Greek, I took some time to translate it this week, and here's what it says. It says patera, which is where we get our word father. But then the next phrase is patria. So look on in verse 15. I want you to see what we lose in English. The father from whom every family. See that word family? That's not the Greek word. The Greek word is fathered or patria. So the play on words is he's the father who fathered everyone living. This is very important because we're approaching the creator who knows us all. In fact, it says he has named us all. Now, to be fair, most of Ephesians has been talking about the church, but that's not the family he's referring to here because there's no definite article. He's referring here to the human race. God has made all people. God has named all people. Therefore, he is the father that all people should go to. And this invocation of knelt prayer before the Father, Creator, and Sovereign reminds us that we can also approach the Father, but keyly only through the Son, which will be the center of today's prayer. Um, Let me give just a quick sidebar, because I've pastored for a while, and many people have asked me over the years, Josh, what should I do with my body when I'm praying? (laughs) You know, am I supposed to kneel, stand, can I pray while I'm driving, You know, how does all that work out? Let me give you a couple thoughts here. In the Bible, we read that people stand normally when they pray. Genesis 24 is a good example. We read of people lifting their hands when they pray. 1 Timothy 2, sitting, Judges 20, kneeling, Mark 1, looking upward, John 17, bowing, Exodus 34, putting your head between your knees, 1 Kings 18, pounding on your chest, Luke 18, facing the temple with eyes open, Daniel 6. So in the Bible, we have all sorts of postures of prayer. But what can we learn from that? And let me tell you a tip that a pastor taught me, and it really unlocked my own prayer life, and I hope you'll take this to heart. The different postures feed one another. Here's what I mean. If you have a time where you privately get alone before God and formally kneel and pray, that is a great thing to think through Scripture and pray it carefully. But you also need times when you're on your way to something difficult and you just spontaneously pray. And if you only do the one, you'll hurt the other. If you have a kneeling prayer time where you formally think through scripture and pray, then when you're on your way to something difficult, that'll inform you when you spontaneously pray. But on the other hand, if you're someone who only prays in those formal times, you're missing out on calling on the God who is able throughout all of life's many twists and turns that come up throughout the day. We ought to do both, and they assist one another. So Paul here in the invocation kneels because of the urgency to the Father who has fathered all things. And now verse 16 gives us the transition to the intercession. It says that according to the riches 
of his glory. He's moving from God's essence, his diverse excellencies, now to God's ability. So if part one was the invocation, calling on God, now part two is the intercession. This is the key part of the passage, so we'll spend most time here. As I said, there's only two requests that he makes. They both have the word strength. They're both infinitives, so they have a result intended with them, that God will give me strength with an intended result. But before we get to it, here's what I want you to be aware of. Paul is praying for Christians. And if you think about that, it ought to make you scratch your head about a few things. He's going to pray Christians will be indwelt by God, but all Christians are indwelt by God. He's going to pray that Christians will understand Christ's love, but by definition, a Christian knows that he is loved by Christ. And third, he's going to pray that Christians will have God's fullness. But he already said in chapter 1 that Christians already possess God's fullness. So why is he praying that they will have what at one level they already possess? And the answer is one that I think you already know. Because sadly, as Christians, if we're honest, it is very common in our experience to not avail ourselves to what God has already given to us. Imagine in your bank account you've allocated a fund for a specific need. But then when a bill comes that's related to that particular fund, you forget to draw on that allocated resource. Here in this passage, Paul is praying that they will experience and apprehend what they've already been entrusted with and possess. Christian, at the heart level and in daily experience, we have to ask God's Spirit to empower us to know what it is to have Christ. That is his prayer. All right, here's the first request, the first strength. And see it in verse 16. The first thing he's praying is that God will grant them, as Christians, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And here's the desired outcome of the first request. Continue on to verse 17. Praying that God will empower them through the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. What does it mean to have Christ dwell in your hearts? It helps if we know the Greek word ketakeo, which is translated to settle in or to take up permanent residence. We've been in North Carolina now for three years, and I still have boxes, and I do not know what is in those boxes. <laughs> we are still moving things around, and I trust we will be doing so for the next 40 years, Lord willing. Everyone knows, and I'm constantly reminded with projects that somehow end up on my to-do list, <laughs> that there's always more you could settle in to a residence that is at one level already yours. Here Christ must settle in at a level that is at one sense already ours. He must take up greater residence in the home of our heart. He must become more comfortable, and we must become more comfortable at calling on him to do so. Yesterday I heard my boys saying out loud that they were going to pretend to be monkeys. I have never seen actors so easily slide into a role. <laughs> They needed no choreography team. 
There was no direction or training. They just immediately headed down. But something will happen probably 30 years from now. Even in a moment of playfulness, they will fail to so easily slide into the role because one of the things endemic to adulthood is to become self-conscious. Now, this is why often throughout the Bible, Jesus tells us to appeal to God as a child would his father. To come dependently and trustingly, in other words, to easily slide into a role of need before a father who made everything and who knows me and loves me. Now, this week I was given a vivid temptation to do or to not do this. We received a letter from my three least favorite letters put together, I R S. They sent us one of these letters that said, we think you owe us more than you've already paid us, which did not sound great to me to read that letter. My wife received it while I was driving the kids to school. She called me. What are we going to do about this? My initial reaction was not particularly spiritual, so I'll edit it from my (laughs) sermon. Thankfully, about 15 minutes later, the Spirit reminded me who God is, and I called Steph back and said, look, the first thing we are going to do is let's pray together over the phone. Because I don't know anything unethical that we did. But I know a God who has ordained this for a good purpose so that Christ will dwell even in this area of my heart. So this passage wants us to see something. Christian, you say, I know I have Christ. Okay, but do you call on him? Does he take up residence in your heart? Peter O'Brien writes on this passage, If Christ takes up residence in our hearts, he's at the center of our lives, exercising rule over all that we are or do. And notice this happens through faith. As we trust him, he makes our heart his home. Christian, it's so easy in the daily warp and woof of life to forget we have a heavenly father and we have Christ within us. If you've never read the Valley of Vision, I highly commend it to you. It's a recording of Puritan prayers. And God was so good that I read it this week. And they have a prayer called the fullness of Christ. Actually, based on this passage, let me read part of what our ancestors in the Lord wrote. Oh God, it is my duty out of a sense of emptiness to go to Christ to possess and enjoy his fullness as mine, as if I had it in myself because it is for me in him. O God, thou hast taught me that the finding of this treasure of all grace in the field of Christ begets strength, joy, glory, and renders all graces alive. So look again in verse 16 when it says that we pray that Christ will dwell in our hearts, but don't miss, brother and sister, through faith. That you call on him, that you depend on him, that you actively trust on him. And what will quicken you to do that? The next phrase, look at how verse 17 ends. Being rooted and grounded in love. From the soil of God's secure love for me, I can call on him for anything and watch Christ dwell increasingly in the resonance of my heart. That was the first prayer request. Now the second. Verse 18. 
and that we may have strength. See the word strength again? It's tipping us off. This is the second infinitive with a desired result. The first was that Christ will dwell. Now notice the second, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What a beautiful thing to pray. The dimensions here, breadth, length, height, depth, what do they mean? To be fair, it could be a Hebraism, what is known in grammar as a mirrorism. When you name the top and the bottom of something, think of Psalm 139 where the writer says, Behold, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. It's a mirrorism of wherever I could be, God is omnipresent. Or like Romans 11, which after 11 chapters of God's unbelievable salvation, he says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. So it could be a mirrorism. But I think it's probably not. Because he ties it specifically to something. He ties it to the love of Christ. And has he not already given us clues in chapters 1 and 2 about what this breadth, length, height, and depth are? What fills these dimensions. What is the breath of God's love for us in Christ? Well, didn't he tell us in chapter one, verse four, that God loved us before the foundation of the world. Its length then goes into eternity future because we read that he will love us until he reconciles all things, making us one in Christ. Chapter one, verses 10 and 11. What is its height? We read in chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 1, verse 20, to put us at the heavenly places. And what is its depth? We read in chapter 1, verse 7, the depth that God went to to love us is that we were brought near through the blood of Christ. I think then the dimensions in Ephesians have at least been hinted at. But now verse 19 says, though they have been hinted at, they cannot be exhausted. Verse 19 says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. May God guide my memory. I'm going off the top of my head. I believe the lyrics to the song are, if we with ink the ocean could fill and every man ascribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Here is a love that we need to know. We need to know by God's power through faith in Christ. And yet it is inexhaustible. It's far surpassing. You know what's so interesting is that he's praying this. I mean, why do we need to know God's love? Why is that so important? Why do we need to know Christ's love for us? And I think the answer is that because we so readily and easily know almost anything else. We have incredible depth of knowledge of almost anything other than the love of Christ. Whether that be triviality or whether that be our self-success, we know that so well. Or whether that be our self-shortcomings and failures, we know those so well. And yet we know the love of Christ at such a thin level. You know what's so wonderful about this? He's not praying for our love for Christ. This is not a bad song, but I remember singing, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. That's a good thing and a good desire. That is not 
what he's praying here. He's not praying that you would love Jesus more. He's praying you would know that Jesus loves you more. Again, I'll quote the Valley of Vision. In God's goodness, they had a second entry called the love of Jesus. My heart melts at the love of Jesus. My brother, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, married to me, dead for me, risen for me. He is mine, I am his. I am never so much mine as when I am his, or so much lost to myself and less lost in him. But then wisely the prayer continues. But my love is frost and cold, ice and snow. So let his love warm me. Let his love lighten my burden. Let his love be my heaven. Let his love be revealed to me in all its influences so that my love to him may be more fervent and glowing. Let the mighty tide of his everlasting love cover the rocks of my sin and care. Then let my spirit float above these things which had else wrecked my life. Given the Valley of Visions meditation, now look at the end of verse 19 and see why this is so important. May you know Christ's love so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you see the synergy that Paul is getting at? I cannot become like Christ unless I dwell on Christ's prior love for me. We love because he first loved us, as John writes in chapter 4, verse 19. This is a fullness where Christ makes us like himself progressively and then one day perfectly. In fact, this same word, there's a play here again, it's plerao, which is to fill, pleroma, in the fullness. And Paul will use these words in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, that we would be brought to maturity, he writes then. It's the same Greek word here. The progressive change in a Christ-likeness is fueled by knowing Christ's love for me. Paul doesn't want us to miss this because it's so easy to move to our assessment of our own performance or growth. Rather, we're to look at God's love for us in Christ. See, I fear that we vastly underestimate the importance of knowing Christ's love. Paul is praying for an inner experience in which Christ becomes as real as if not more real than any person you've ever known and any love you've ever felt. And if you know Christ's love like that, it relativizes all other concerns and anxieties. Here's the key, and I left this clue for you because I wanted to come back to it. Why can I say knowing the love of Christ is actually the most important thing for you? And the answer was hinted at at the end of verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17. Notice the realm in which Christ is to do this work. The end of verse 16 says, in your inner being. And verse 17 parallels with the word heart. Unfortunately for us, for reasons that are not worth spending time on this morning, we use the word heart totally differently than they used it in the first century. We talk about mind and heart and actions. That's not at all how the word is used in the biblical era. Maybe I can illustrate it this week. Uh, this week, one morning, uh, I had some kids that were sick, so it was only me and one child in the back seat on the way to school. And as I was driving, we were about halfway there, and I could tell he had been watching me from the back. And at some point, with incredible confidence, he said to me, I could do that. And I said, do what? He said, I, I could drive this car. 
And the, the first thought I had immediately was, you know, you're in first grade, so the legality of that is not a good idea. But then what was so funny, before I could even speak, he immediately said, what's that thing in the middle, the, you know, the stick? <laughs> and what's that thing you're holding? And what are those things on the bottom? And I thought, you just said you could drive this, this thing. You don't know what any of the key things are. But, but this will maybe help you understand how the Bible uses the word heart. What really decides what's going to happen with my car? It's not really the drive shaft or the steering wheel or the pedals. It's the driver. That's what the Bible word heart means. It doesn't mean intellect or emotion or volition. It means the thing underneath all those things. Don't you get it now? If Christ increasingly dwells in that, everything works out. If you know his love there, it affects everything. The steering wheel, the drive shaft, the pedals are to be shaped by a better driver, by Jesus. And you will let him drive when you know his love. Now Paul moves to the doxology. Verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Three thoughts just right here simply on this doxology. First, let me just remind you this morning, God can do more than you think he can do. He is transcendent in his ability. Let me also remind you from this passage, his glory is the goal because he is eternally weighty and wonderful. And his glory happens through his head and his body. God never separates those the way we do. The church and Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I know for reasons that are understandable that I can have compassion on, Many people think prayer is ineffective. Sometimes after a national tragedy, something horrible that happens in the world, someone will say, we're praying for you, and the person who hears that will be deeply angered. You're going to pray for me? Prayer doesn't do anything. Maybe that makes you feel better, but it doesn't help us. Now, of course, prayer should never lead us to be inactive. Prayer should motivate and fuel service and activity. But friend, God can do above and all what we ask or think. What could be better than to pray for someone else? What Paul is doing in this passage is praying for others. Churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, you think they don't have other things going on in their life? They know persecution. They know health troubles. They have relational disharmony. He doesn't pray for any of that. He prays that they would know Christ's love because he knows that their need is to have God's power to comprehend what their most urgent issue is. Let us pray to the God who does above and beyond what we can ask or think. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Given that God can do above and beyond what we ask or think, seriously, are you praying too small? John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, but he wrote a lot of other poems that some of them turned into hymns. We don't know very many of them. This one is excellent. Here's how it begins. 
Come, my soul, with every care. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself bids you to pray. He will never turn away. I love the middle verse. You are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Are you praying too small? The second question I ask you, who can you be praying for? Paul's not praying for himself here. What if you took this prayer home this afternoon and said, God, who do I need to pray this for? Someone in your family, someone in your neighborhood. And what if you believed that God could do it? God, I pray that this person who seems like the most resistant person I know would have Christ dwell in their hearts through faith and that they would comprehend the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Pray it because he is able. I want to also now give you three specific ways that we should live in light of today's text. These aren't on your notes, so if you're a note taker, I'll try to make them simple. Three ways this text should change our life. And I'll just tell them up front. We should pray earnestly. We should go to Christ communally. And we should open our heart to Christ completely. All right, first, we should pray earnestly. Have you ever been in a canoe and you were in there first? And then the person who's about to join you looks a little unstable. <laughs> and you know canoes, right? I mean, it doesn't take much. Just a little bit off on one side. And you're, and, you're, and you're watching them and you're assessing them because you want to stay level. I love that this prayer keeps two things level that I see a lot of Christians tip the canoe on. On the one hand, it says we cannot do this. We need the Spirit to empower us to do this. Some Christians are really good at that. I can't. He can. May the Spirit do this. But on the other hand, it says, but we need to pray in faith and earnestly pursue this. And some Christians are good at that. Have them both and keep the canoe level. Think of Jesus saying, call on the Lord because you can't do anything, but call fervently, call repeatedly, ask, seek, knock, pursue. Hudson Taylor and the missionary to China prayed this every morning. Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to face vision keen than any outward object seen. Simple memory, but every morning. You know, I think that the key here, this is the part we missed that would cause the canoe to tip, is it's in, in the ESV, the word comprehend there in verse 18. Look at it. I'm praying that you'll have strength to comprehend. I love the ESV. I think it fails us a little bit here. If you have the NIV, you have the word grasp. It's much better. The word lambano is an extremely strong word. Any dictionary you look it up in, it, depending on the grammatical conditions, it normally means to overtake, to seize. It's actually used in the Bible when you plunder a city or you capture someone and wrestle them to the ground. It's extremely strong. Harold Honer writes, Paul is telling us to lay hold of, to seize, and to wrestle to the ground that Jesus Christ loves us. Do you pursue it like that? Or do you just sort of casually gloss over things? In Isaiah 49, verse 15, God describes his love this way to his people. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she have no compassion on the son of her womb, Even those may forget, yet I will not forget you. 
Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What person can read that? You can read it and it can wash over you, or you can grasp it until it changes you. Pray earnestly. Number two, this is a communal experience. This is not your pastor sneaking into church, okay? <laughs> Look in verse 18. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Did you not see in verse 21? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Why does Paul want them to comprehend this together? Don't you know? Haven't you sensed the love of Christ differently when you're gathered with God's people singing amazing grace? Haven't you sensed the love of God differently when around a table you're having a Bible study and you see that sister who's walked with the Lord and she brings out an observation you would have missed and it strikes you at the level of your soul? This is a communal experience that the Spirit works in us together. Don't overlook that and don't gloss over it. And third, open your heart to Christ. This is one of those great triunity prayers. It's to the Father. It's empowered by the Spirit. But it all happens in Christ Jesus. He's the one who settles our hearts in verse 17. He's the one whose love we ought to know in verse 19. So let me say something to you in case you've not yet had this experience. Friend, please listen to what I'm about to say. Every character quality of God and every promise of God in the Bible will remain uninteresting to you until you know Jesus personally. None of it changes anything until you know Jesus. That's the difference, is knowing the love of Christ. So now let's think about the love of Christ and let's look at those dimensions one last time. It's breath, meaning it's with. Where do you think we most know the love of Jesus? The cross. Here he is, murdered, in the middle, intentionally, of those in need. Arms opened literally, but also genuinely, figuratively, to any who will come to him as he prays, Father, forgive them. He had prophesied previously that when I am lifted up, I will draw all types of people to myself. And so Revelation 7 gives us the breath of what Christ's cross means. I looked and beheld a great multitude no one could number from every tribe, nation, and tongue crying out, salvation belongs to the Lord our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. How wide is the love of God? It is the breath that is innumerable. How long is the love of Christ? Again, if we think about the cross, Revelation tells us in chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. Christ pursues us before we were even brought into being. His plan for us is eternal. How about the depth? He who was God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And then he humbled himself inestimably further when he died on the death of a cross. Under the ocean of the weight of God's righteous wrath and the crushing sense of human vile sin. 
God crushed on the cross. That's the depth. But praise the Lord, there's still the height. And the height is that Jesus, who cried out, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Then rose and emerged from the tomb. And we read here in Ephesians, the fulfilling of his prayer in John 17, that when he was exalted, that he would raise with him to the heavenly places all who trust in him. What do we do for a God who loves us like that? We pray, verse 21. God, to Christ be glory. In this church, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, please strengthen us to know the thing that we need to know most. That Christ loves us. Please strengthen us, Lord, so that Christ will dwell increasingly in our hearts through faith. God, we are so good at knowing other things. And it is so natural for us to respond to life without drawing on Christ. So please give us strength to earnestly seek him, to do so together, and to open our heart to him. Perhaps this morning someone has walked in here today who has yet to call on the Lord to be saved. Lord, help them to realize that Jesus went to the cross to bear our sin and remove it completely, but he is the only way. Help them to see the love of Christ and that Jesus took their place personally. May the scriptures not be boring to them. May they become alive because they know Jesus in their own heart. But Lord, as Christians, we confess, I confess, God, how easy it is for me to kind of nod my head at these truths and not be radically altered by them. So work within me, work within us. The experience of knowing, grasping the love of Christ. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.